Well, as always, it's a privilege and a blessing to open the Word of God with you, especially in this book of Colossians, as we're in our final chapter now of this great letter and this wonderful journey together. Turn to Colossians chapter 4 this morning, Colossians chapter 4. I've mentioned to you before that it's been said that if you want to preach a convicting sermon, preach on either prayer or evangelism. And Paul must have known that to be true himself because in this final section of admonition in Colossians, he's going to teach on prayer and evangelism. You know, just like a a newborn baby begins to breathe air upon their arrival into the world, the Christian, upon being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, begins to pray. Prayer is not a formula, nor is it a manipulative tactic to convince God to fulfill our greatest wishes and desires, but prayer comes rather naturally to the Christian because upon conversion, the Christian is, is baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, and we come into union with Christ. We have relationship with Christ. That's why the call of the gospel is not a call to to come to church. It's not a call to religiosity. It's not a call to a ceremony. It is a call to a person. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at Matthew 11, 28. There Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible regularly offers salvation refers to salvation as our initiation into this very special union with Christ. In every illustration we have in the scripture of what the the church's relationship is to Christ is to be, it emphasizes this idea of of union with him, of, of nearness, of closeness, of a deep relationship. Now, over the last several weeks in the book of Colossians, we've been talking about one particular way that we relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is master and we are his slaves. We've talked at length about that. But we would be unbalanced in our thinking and really unbiblical to think that that's the only way that the Christian relates to Jesus Christ. The Bible, in fact, gives us several descriptions of how we relate to God and to Christ. It calls us sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters with Christ, the bride of Christ, The Bible says Christians are members of Christ's own body, branches connected to the vine who is Christ, and bricks who are attached permanently to the foundation, the cornerstone who is Christ. Each of these realities in their own unique way picture a union with him, a deep, lasting relationship. In fact, it was this kind of relationship eternally that Jesus prayed for on the night before he was arrested and would ultimately be uh, crucified the following day. In John 17, beginning in verse 22, this is his high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples and says, the glory which you've given me, I have given to them. That they, listen to this, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you love them, even as you have loved me. He goes on in verse 24 Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am. Isn't that amazing? I desire that they be with me so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I've made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you see, this this is how Jesus thinks about his relationship with us as his people that we are with him and he desires that we will be with him forever prayer then is the the means through which we communicate to God through the Lord Jesus Christ by the enabling of the spirit we speak to God in prayer and he speaks back to us through the word of God and thus we have relationship with God The Spirit illuminates the Word of God so that we understand it and we respond in praying back to Him. 
Therefore, prayer and Bible reading become the primary means through which we grow as believers, the primary means through which the Spirit sanctifies us, making us progressively more like Christ. And yet, even though that's true, and many of you knew that was true before you got here today, how often do we neglect to pray? How often do we neglect to pray? In our text this morning, Paul is going to give us final admonitions. This really is the last teaching section of this letter before he moves on to sort of closing remarks. This week and next, we'll be looking at this last section of his teaching. But just as a way of reminder, remember in chapter 1, we looked at Paul's prayer for the Colossians, and we were convicted about how to pray even then. And we saw as he magnified the name of Christ. In chapter 2, we learned about false teachers and false doctrines that were infiltrating the church that Paul warned the Colossians about. In chapter 3, Paul called all of us to have a truly Christian perspective, to set our minds on things above, and he called us to fight sin, to put off sin, to renew our mind with truth, and to put on righteousness. And then most recently, of course, we've been looking at the relationships within the home and how we are to relate to one another. That brings us now to chapter 4, verses 2 to 6 in this final section. Let's read these verses together. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. In these verses, Paul gives us two commands for Christian living in a fallen world. Two commands for Christian living in a fallen world. The first command is be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to prayer. That's what we're going to look at this week. And then next week, the next command, command number two, is be wise towards unbelievers. Be wise towards unbelievers. We're going to look at these two commands in turn. But here is really the theme. If we were to wrap this section up into one statement, it would be this. Every Christian is to be marked by devotion to prayer and gospel advancement. Every Christian is to be marked by devotion to prayer and gospel advancement. Now this morning we'll only look at verses 2 through 4, so look back with me at the text in verse 2 where Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. This is the first command. Be devoted to prayer. The, the command there is obvious. It's the word devote. Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote is a present tense command. That is, it's an ongoing action for the believer. We're to, to do this as a way of life. And in fact, in the Greek text, the word order is, is changed to emphasize prayer. The actual word order is this. To prayer, be devoted. To prayer, be devoted. He emphasizes that prayer is the theme here, to prayer be devoted. Now, the, the word devoted means to busy oneself with something or to be busily engaged in something. So the Christian then is to be intentionally busily engaged as a regular pattern of life in prayer. It implies intentionality. It implies a, a continuous action. In fact, Douglas Moo says this, he says, The point then is not that believers should pray with intensity when they pray, but that they should pray habitually and with perseverance. Now, if you've read the New Testament at all, at all you know this is not uh, confined to this one place in the text. We see this in places like 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, where Paul says, Pray without ceasing. Or Ephesians 6, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. The clear insinuation then is that the Christian life is to be a life that revolves around prayer. It is to ooze out of us. 
This will include, of course, set aside specific times of prayer during the day. But beyond that, it includes this sort of continual relationship with Christ in which there are daily, all throughout the day, spontaneous prayers going up to God as we interact with the day and the circumstances of life. Obviously, Paul's intention is not that we stay in our room all day on our, on our knees, physically in a posture of prayer in some sort of monastic lifestyle. That's not the idea. But instead, that prayer is to be the regular habit of the Christian, that it's just to be a continuous, unending conversation with the Lord, calling out to him. Be devoted to prayer. You know, it's interesting that, that some who hold most firmly to the doctrine that God is sovereign over all things struggle when it comes to the idea of prayer and evangelism, for that matter. They, they struggle to, to discipline themselves to pray and even at times understand the necessity of prayer. After all, the thinking goes, if God is sovereign over all things, then ultimately why do I need to pray? But understand that the Bible does not agree with you if you see that as a tension. The, the Bible sees no contradiction or tension between the two ideas that God is sovereign over all things, that he is all-powerful and his will will come to pass, and the fact that we are called to pray, and the fact that we are in desperate need of God through prayer. That's because the Bible explains that while God is perfectly sovereign, he uses means to accomplish his ends. He uses means to accomplish his ends. What I mean by that is God has chosen to carry out his sovereign plans for the world through the use of certain things, one of those being the prayers of his people. He calls on us to pray, and he really does move through prayer. That's how he has sovereignly ordained to accomplish his purposes. Not because he needs our help, but because he desires for it to be this way. This is his perfect sovereign plan. Prayer then is one of the primary means by which God accomplishes these plans. And I think it's safe to say that the two most common places that we go to in the scripture to defend the sovereignty of God would be the explicit teachings of Jesus Christ himself in places like John chapter 6, for instance, and the teachings of the Apostle Paul. And yet, obviously, in the life of Jesus and Paul, we see two men who were devoted to prayer. Obviously, the command to pray here is coming from Paul. And what I want to show you just for a moment is in the life of Jesus, how Jesus lived out this command that Paul's giving it to us today. I want you to see briefly Jesus' pattern of prayer and then just a couple of passages on Jesus' teaching on prayer but think about it this way. If there has ever been a person that's walked the face of the planet that didn't need to pray, is it not Jesus? If there's anybody that could just skip their devotion time in the morning, is it not Jesus? And yet, what is the pattern that we see consistently in the life of our Lord? Let's look first of all at Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Got up before the sun to pray. Luke 5, 16, but the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. About Luke 6, verses 12 to 13, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and listen to this, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. On the night before, Jesus would choose from his big group of followers who the 12 apostles would be. He spent the entire night in prayer. 
We could look at so many other places. We've already read from John 17, the high priestly prayer. We could go to Matthew 26, 36 to 46, the, the prayer in the garden on the night before he's arrested where he prays for the Father's will to be done and not his. Honestly, as I began to look at this, we could spend the weeks on talking about Jesus' prayer life. Just start noticing when you read through the Gospels. He prays before he does miracles. He prays before they eat. He, he's praying at his baptism when the Spirit descends upon him. Jesus was a man who prayed. It was part of his regular life. He's got up early to pray. He stayed up late to pray, and he prayed throughout the day. This is how he lived. But what about Jesus' teaching on prayer? We're just going to look at two passages here for the sake of time, but Luke 11, verses 1 to 13. Notice the context. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, so what, what promotes or prompts this scene is Jesus' own prayer life. The example of Jesus' prayer is what causes his disciples to ask to be taught to pray. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, now he's, he's not only going to give this example of prayer, but now he's going to teach them about prayer. He said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from, from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door's already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then one more passage, Matthew 5. We see another example of Jesus' teaching on prayer. Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, these are just two passages of, of a myriad of passages that we could take from Jesus' life and ministry on prayer. But here's just a few bullet points of, of truth that Jesus just taught us from those passages. Prayer should be persistent. Prayer should be God-exalting. We, we should pray for God's will to be done on earth. We should pray for daily needs and necessities. We should pray for deliverance from temptation. We should pray for forgiveness, for sin. We should even pray for our enemies. Now, this is just a, a few. We, we, we could go on and on about the things that Jesus taught about prayer, but don't miss the point. The point is that Jesus himself gives us the example of what it is to be devoted to prayer. Did anyone know the sovereignty of God better than Jesus Christ? And yet, can we find a better example of daily devotion to prayer than the Lord Jesus Christ. These two truths are not intention. They are friends. But the real question is, not is Jesus devoted to prayer, but are we devoted to prayer? As you think about your own prayer life, can you honestly say that you are a person who is devoted to prayer? Not do you pray ever, but are you devoted to prayer. 
Does your prayer life involve getting up early or staying up late to find time to be alone with the Lord? Jesus was a busy man, only increasingly so throughout his ministry, and so he did whatever was necessary. He went to deserted places. He went where nobody wanted to go before anyone wanted to be there and later than anyone wanted to stay so that he could have alone time to pray. Do you persevere in prayer as Jesus taught, in faith, believing that God loves you as as his child and desires to answer your prayers? Are your prayers confined only to certain times of the day and then left there until tomorrow, or do you pray continuously? This is what it means to be devoted to prayer. And we as Christians are in desperate need for God all throughout the day, for sanctification, for wisdom, for daily provision, for spiritual and physical strength, for faithfulness and evangelism, and so on and so forth. The list could continue. It's a contradiction to say that we love God and we believe that he's all-powerful and in full control and yet refuse to pray. We must be careful to devote ourselves to a robust daily, continuous prayer life. May we follow the example of our Lord and the Apostle Paul in these things. This is the command, the overarching command, be devoted to prayer, be devoted to it. But Paul goes on now to give us one general instruction about what it means to be devoted to prayer. And then he's gonna give us two personal requests of things that he wants the Colossians to pray for for him and his companions. So we're going to begin with this general instruction that Paul gives us next in verse 2. Right after the command, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. Keeping alert in it. That, That phrase there, keeping alert, literally means to stay awake. And so obviously it would include that. We can all have moments of of, of not being fully with it while we're praying, and we, we need to persevere through those things, but that's not really the main idea of what he's saying. He's not just telling us, hey, be devoted to prayer and make sure you don't fall asleep. That's not the main idea. The point is to be watchful in prayer. What's watchfulness look like? MacArthur says it this way. He says, Paul's thought here, however, is broader than mere physical alertness. He also means that believers should look for those things about which they ought to be praying. Believers should look for those things about which they ought to be praying. It's a a reminder that the, the Christian response to the things happening around him or her is to pray. Our first reflex, our first response to the joys and the difficulties of life should be to pray. And we're to pray not only for God's will to be done in that circumstance, but for God's will to be done in us through that circumstance as we bear up underneath it. Is it God's, God's always doing more than one thing. He's not just handling the circumstance around you, but he's seeking to transform you in the midst of the circumstance. We need to pray for God's will to be done in both ways. But so many times I fear that we're all tempted to respond to the difficulties of life in a worldly way, like unbelievers. Let me give you a contemporary example of how this can happen. If you've been near a TV at all or talked to another individual over the last few weeks, you are aware of the sad events that have taken place in Afghanistan. It's not wrong for us to be sad about what's happened or even to to disagree with the way things have been so poorly handled. But I do think Paul's words here call us to ask this question. Is our first response to vent our frustrations to family and friends or social media, or is it to hit our knees in urgent prayer? If we aren't careful, we can act as if if our elegant and pointed words on social media or to friends and family have, have more power or impact on the world stage than our private prayer to the sovereign God of the universe who actually is in control of all these things, who made the universe. Are you saddened or disillusioned by world events? Are you feeling crushed under the weight of personal trial or tragedy? Are you weighed down in the battle with sin? Are you desperate to see lost family members and friends come to salvation by the grace of God? Then friend, run to God in prayer. Don't walk, don't wait. Run to God in prayer. 
Do you really believe that we serve the one true God of the universe who spoke all of this into existence by the word of his power? Do you believe that by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, not because of our merit, but because of his, we have access to the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit? Then why in the world do we act like unbelievers sometimes when our circumstances don't turn out the way we wish they would? Paul says, keep fervent in it, believer. Be devoted to prayer and be watchful in prayer. Look at the world around you as constant opportunities to pray. Take it to God in prayer. Be ready on the edge of your seat, as it were, in watching for things to pray for, both the joys of life, the highs and the lows, the difficulties in life. Every trial, every joy, every temptation, every decision, every burden, every blessing, Bring it to him in prayer. That's what it is to be watchful, to be alert in prayer. Just like the old hymn says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Paul wants us to see that our lives are are to be one, constantly filled with prayer, devoted But also we're to keep alert in it that we interpret all of life through the grid of what God is doing in the world. And so everything then becomes a reason to pray. But Paul also wants us to understand that there's a certain attitude that should define our prayer lives. Yes, we're to be devoted to it, we're to be watchful in it, but with a certain attitude. Look at the proper attitude for prayer back in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. With an attitude of thanksgiving. Now this short little statement is so important, we can't just blow by it, we can't overlook it. When we communicate our thoughts or adorations or requests or burdens to God in prayer, Paul says they are always to be defined and colored by an overarching attitude of thanksgiving. And this is crucial to understand because gratitude towards God springs out of our understanding of the character and nature of God. Another way to say that is our theology of God informs our gratitude towards God. Our theology of God informs our gratitude towards God. The only way that every single prayer we pray can be defined by gratitude is if we really understand the holiness and omnipotence and goodness of the God to whom we're praying. As Christians, the foundation of our relationship with God is the grace of God extended to us in Christ. We begin there that we are saved by grace, sinners that have no business having a relationship with God, and yet we have it because Christ purchased it for us. And therefore, if we start with that foundation, no matter how bad it gets, we always have a place of gratitude to begin with in prayer. No matter how dark or heavy the trial we're living in, no matter how crazy and out of control the world scene may seem, our first appropriate attitude towards God, according to Paul, is always gratitude. I've been saddened and frankly shocked to see some Christians teach that it's right and appropriate to be angry at God in the midst of difficult or confusing circumstances. Even just recently, I saw a a somewhat famous Christian post on social media that it's okay for us to vent our anger and frustration towards God because he can take it, I said. But friends, understand that that's never taught in the Bible. There was no scripture reference given. There are examples in the Psalms of the psalmist expressing confusion and in struggling in the midst of difficulty, but you know what they always do? They bring it back ultimately to, but I will trust in you, my God. No, I can't see the path. It's dark. All seems lost, but I know it's not because I trust in you. Then, of course, we have the book of Job. Job does actually begin to accuse God of wrongdoing towards the end of the book. He's not understanding why it is that God's allowed him to go through these circumstances. And so when he does that, does God respond to Job and say, go ahead, Job. I can take it. Let me have it. Is that what he says? Listen to what God says to Job 
in Job 38. This goes on for a few chapters, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. But listen to the beginning of God's response to Job's sinful questioning of him. Job 38, verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment, a thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here you shall your proud waves stop. You see, God comes to Job and reminds him of just how big and sovereign and good he really is. He reminds Job of his nature. He doesn't ever answer Job's question of why. Instead, he does something more. He shows Job who he is. And Job responds the only way that he can respond, the right way, now that he's humbled and brought back to a right perspective. Job 42, 5 and 6, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, Paul understands as he writes to the Colossians that the true nature and character of, of God, whom he serves, is, is good. That God is not only sovereign, but he is good. And therefore, what he allows in our life, he allows for good purposes. And remember the context of Colossians. Where is Paul as he writes this letter? He's in prison. He's writing from, from jail for, for wrongful imprisonment, ultimately because of his faith. And yet he understands that even in his circumstance, which we could all say is, is a terrible circumstance from an earthly perspective, he understands that, that he wouldn't be in prison if God didn't want him to be in prison. God was fully capable of breaking Paul out of jail. And so he understands that if I'm here, I'm here on purpose, and God has a good purpose even in my imprisonment. We know this to be Paul's theology because he writes it in places like Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now hopefully you understand what I meant when I said that it's our theology of God that informs our gratitude towards God. We, if we have a wrong theology of God, we will respond in anger and in frustration and in con confusion and think wrongfully that we can just vent our anger to God because he can take it. But when we understand the true character of God, that he's not only all-powerful and sovereign, but he's good and intentional, then the gratitude comes. This idea of an attitude of, of thanksgiving is pervasive for Paul. It's been all throughout Colossians. Let me just remind you of where Paul says this elsewhere in this letter. All the way back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, he begins, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He says it again in chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been rooted, firmly rooted, and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. And then finally, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks 
through him to God the Father. As you know, Paul wrote the book of Philippians also from the exact same prison cell in which he's pinning these words. And he tells them this about anxiety. He says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God. Don't you see that for Paul, there was no other perspective than this, that the Christian is to be one who is grateful, who is thankful to God, even on the darkest of days. It was a defining perspective for Paul that certainly should pervade our prayers. The question that we have to ask ourselves, of course, is, is it true of you and me? Let me ask you, Christian, have you allowed the difficulties of life or the frustrations of our cultural situation to justify a persistent lack of gratitude towards God? Or do you, like Paul, have a perspective of the sovereignty and goodness of God that is so exalted that you see the fingerprints of his goodness even on your darkest days? Paul says our prayer life is not only to be continuous and watchful, but it's to be defined by thanksgiving. Now, at this point, Paul moves on from giving direct instructions about our prayer life to asking for two specific prayer requests. And before we look at these two requests, I just want us to remember the context again. Paul is in prison, and I want us to picture ourselves. If if it was you or me in that prison cell, and we were asking other believers to pray for us, what are the things that we would ask? that they pray for. And then let's compare that to what Paul asked that they pray for. Two personal requests. Here here are the things that Paul asked them to pray for in the midst of his imprisonment. Back in verse two, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. Now he says us as in in the plural because there are others there with him. We know Timothy is with him because that's at the beginning of the letter. But also at the end of the letter we see he has other companions. And so he's saying pray for me and my companions these two things. And the first prayer request we see here is a prayer for gospel opportunity. Gospel opportunity. Look back at the text. praying Verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word. That God will open up to us a door for the word. Paul, here he is, he's in prison, and instead of praying, you know, pray that I get out quickly, or, or pray that they see that I'm innocent, he says, no, I want you to pray that God will open wide for us a door for the word. That, that phrase, open a door, is used often by Paul to, to refer to an open door for evangelism. And that's what he's asking for here. He's asking them to pray, not that God would open the door of the prison, but that God would open the doors for the sharing of the gospel message. What's interesting is that Paul is not praying that God would take him out of prison in order for him to have these opportunities, but that God would give him opportunity while he's in prison. I think so many times we're tempted to pray, God, get me out of this difficult situation so I can be more faithful and have more opportunities. And Paul didn't pray that way. Instead of praying to get out of the situation, Paul said, God, transform this situation into a gospel opportunity itself. See, often we make a plan for our lives with sincere motives, trying to make a plan for our lives that we think will allow for maximum effectiveness for the kingdom. Man, if we're going to do this, and I'm going to get this degree or this thing, and I'm going to go here and take that job, and it's going to open up all these doors for maximum gospel faithfulness. And we should do that. We should use the resources that God's given us. We should plan. We see that Paul did that in his missionary endeavors. He made plans. But inevitably, there are obstacles and trials that get in the way of our neatly packaged plans, aren't there? And we get derailed from that perfect plan that we had in mind of what was going to open up all these doors for ministry and opportunity opportunities for God. And so our temptation can be frustration because our plan is not working out. And therefore, in our minds, we're missing out on opportunities when God says, no, 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 I am directing your path and putting you in the place of the opportunities that I have designed for you, not your plan. And that's how Paul thought about life. 
I think we could all make an argument and say, well, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better that Paul's out of prison and he's doing mis- more missionary journeys and he could be at this church preaching at that church? And God says, no. The most effective place for Paul to be right now is in prison. One evidence of that is the fact that we're studying the book of Colossians and we've read from Philippians. Imagine a Bible with no Colossians, no Ephesians, no Philemon, and no Philippians. Paul wrote all those books from this prison cell. God used his ministry in profound ways, even in the confines of that prison. And he's asking not for release, but for opportunity. You see, Paul actually saw his imprisonment as beneficial to the gospel work that God had called him to. He doesn't say that explicitly here, but he does in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, that is his imprisonment, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Listen to that. Me being in prison has actually been better for the progress of the gospel. How is that possible, Paul? So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But some also from goodwill. And the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Paul says, because I'm in here and I'm, and I'm standing strong in the faith, the believers on the outside are being strengthened, and they're sharing the gospel courageously. And so the gospel's going forth through them in ways it could never go just from my one voice. This is instructive for us. And if we were confused about what Paul was hoping to do with these open doors, he describes it in detail for us. Here's why he wanted an open door, verse 3, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. I want an open door so I can speak forth the mystery of Christ, Paul says. The mystery of Christ is one of Paul's favorite ways of referring to the gospel. And that word mystery there, we've talked about this before, but the Greek word for mystery is different than our English word for mystery. You may think of the word mystery and think of a mystery novel or mystery series, something that we've got to investigate and untangle and figure out. And all the clues are there. We've just got to put them all together. But the Greek word for mystery means something that was completely unknowable, that was known only to God until God revealed it to us through revelation. That is the gospel. You know, we we would have never known the full gospel if God had not told us and showed us. And we, we see progressively through the Old Testament moving towards the New Testament, more and more pieces of the puzzle coming together. But the book of Hebrews says, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. The idea is that the fullness of the gospel has now been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul refers to it as the mystery of the gospel, that knowledge of the gospel that was previously unknown, but now God has revealed it completely to us. Paul says, I want to tell everybody about that. I want open doors in my imprisonment to preach the mysteries of Christ. Brings up a good question. What is the gospel? What is it that Paul wanted so badly to share through his imprisonment? The mystery of Christ or the gospel is this. It's the truth that all of us are created by God and yet we are sinners. We have rebelled against a holy God and therefore we rightly deserve his punishment for our sin. But the Bible says that we are unable in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God, that we cannot be good enough, that we cannot stack up enough good deeds or righteous acts to bring ourselves to God, but instead we are in need of God to do something for us. And the good news of the gospel is that God has done just that in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son, the God-man, to live a perfect life and to die as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for sin that his people deserved and then to rise again from the grave on the third day. 
And the Bible says that this good news is for all people everywhere, that for anyone who will repent of their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, believing that he is their only hope of being right with God and saved, they will be eternally redeemed. That is the message that Paul was so eager to share and praying, God, open doors that I can proclaim the mysteries of Christ. And friend, I have to ask you this morning before we move on, have you come to the place where you have understood that mystery of the gospel that's been revealed and you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ because there is no hope for salvation outside of the good news of the gospel. Paul prayed for open doors to share that message. If you have not embraced that message yet, may this morning be the day when you humble yourself, recognize your true condition as a sinner before God and turn to Christ in repentance and faith. But Paul prayed for something else as we draw this to a close. Paul had one final request. The first request was in the plural. He said, pray for us, but now he uses the singular. And the second request is a prayer for gospel faithfulness. Gospel faithfulness. Not only gospel opportunity, but gospel faithfulness. Look back at Verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may proclaim or speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Again, notice the word I. He transitions now from from we to I. And he says, "I, I not only want opportunities to share the gospel, But I want you to pray that when I have opportunities to share the gospel, that I will make it clear, that I'll make the gospel clear in the way that I ought to speak. Have you ever felt tempted to either not share the gospel or to share it in a watered-down way to attempt to preserve your own reputation? I think we've all experienced that temptation. You see, the good news of the gospel has always been offensive to people, and it will be until the Lord returns. People take offense at at, at several aspects of the gospel. They're offended by the fact that they are not good people, but sinners. They're offended when we tell them there's nothing that they can do to make themselves right with God. And they are offended because we say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, amongst other things. But in the end, the gospel is offensive, not because it's 2,000 years old, but because it was offensive to its contemporary hearers. The gospel is offensive, not because of an intellectual problem, but because of the pride of man. It's man's pride and his own depravity that keeps him from believing the gospel. And because of that, we can be tempted to want to water down and not make the gospel as clear as we could because we don't want to offend, because if we do, it could mean bad things for us, either relationally with a person or in Paul's case, further imprisonment or death. And so we just kind of just kind of hedge on the gospel a little bit. We, we kind of skip over the sin part and say, Jesus died for you. We just kind of preach, preach that part and we leave out the part of the need for the gospel. There are different ways to shortchange the gospel that Paul says, I recognize that that is inadequate, that it's not my calling. Pray that I will make it clear. What he's praying for is boldness, for the ability to have courage to say what the gospel really is when God gives those opportunities and not to either skip the opportunities or to shortchange the gospel. In fact, this last phrase, in the way I ought to speak, is it's an interesting, it's it's actually just a three-letter Greek word that means it is necessary. The the idea is, is Paul is saying, not just in the way that he ought to speak, but in the way he has to speak. As an apostle, as one commissioned by God, there's this burning in his bones. I have to share the gospel and I wanna make it clear. I don't know about you, but it encourages me that Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, who was called into ministry by the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus, whose whole calling was to go and share the gospel with the Gentiles, asked for prayer, for opportunity to share the gospel, and for faithfulness in sharing the gospel. Friends, if the Apostle Paul needed people praying for him, 
for opportunities and for faithfulness, how much more do we need to be on our face before God saying, God, help me. If you're nervous to share the gospel, join the club. If you're tempted at times to to shortchange the gospel, join the club. But let's also join the club of praying for one another. God, embolden us to have the courage to speak the gospel and open doors for us and not just doors, but, but give us the faithfulness to run through those doors and to proclaim the gospel because only by the true gospel can men and women be saved and drawn to eternal salvation with God. Paul's prayer requests for us are convicting on two fronts. They remind us to see every circumstance as a divine opportunity for the gospel and they remind us that we are in desperate need of God if we're to take those opportunities and be faithful. So as we close this morning, I'm just gonna mention again the things I've already said for you to take home and evaluate your own heart as I'm evaluating mine in these areas. Number one, I would encourage you to evaluate your devotion to prayer. The frequency and fervency and faith with which you pray. Are you devoted to prayer? Secondly, evaluate the attitude of your prayer. Are you filled with thanksgiving towards God in your prayers? Is that, is that the attitude that, that sums up the way in which you pray? And then finally, evaluate the centrality of the gospel in your prayer. Evaluate the centrality of the gospel in your prayer. It's so easy for us to get caught up in just praying for the daily needs of life and the the things that we wish would happen here or there. And we should bring those things to God. But do we pray, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, use me as as a tool to spread the good news of the gospel that others might come to know you. I pray that we'll be faithful to that end. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful text, a great reminder of our, not only our call to share the gospel, but our need, our need for you to strengthen us to share the gospel, but also just the gift of prayer. We don't find ourselves only in need of these things, but we find ourselves having access to you through the blood of your Son. God, help us not to ever forget the gift that prayer is. God, may we be those who, as Paul says, are devoted to prayer, who keep alert in prayer, pray with thanksgiving. Pray that these things would be true of us as your people, as a church. We ask in the name of Jesus.